It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On May 10th, 1812, 34-year-old Russell Colvin disappeared from his in-law's farm in Manchester, Vermont. At first, no one was alarmed. Friends and family viewed Russell as unstable and prone to wandering off. But over the next seven years, the citizens of Manchester grew to suspect that Stephen and Jesse Bourne, Russell's brothers-in-law, knew more about the disappearance than they were letting on. Rumors of a family feud ignited suspicions that the Bourne brothers were involved in Russell's vanishing, that perhaps they'd murdered him. Then in April of 1819, the brother's uncle, Amos Bourne, had a dream that Russell's ghost led him to a root cellar where his body was buried. After a thorough search, no body was discovered. But word of Amos's vision spread until the townspeople were convinced Russell Colvin must have been killed. Stephen and Jesse Bourne were arrested for his death in spite of any direct evidence, including Russell's body. Even without this proof, state's attorney Calvin Sheldon believed his case was airtight. Items belonging to Russell were found in the cellar Amos saw in his dream. He had two witnesses to an argument between the brothers and Russell on the day he went missing. But most of all, both brothers confessed to the murder. Sheldon was certain he would see the Bourne brothers hanged for their crime. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find new episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Today, we're continuing our discussion of the Bourne brothers and their alleged involvement in the murder of 34-year-old Russell Colvin. Last week, we followed the investigation into Russell's disappearance as Manchester town officials tried to determine if a crime was actually committed. Eventually, Stephen and Jesse Bourne became the only suspects in Russell's presumed murder. This week, we'll examine the brothers' 1819 trial. We'll see how the evidence against them was presented to the jury and the dramatic events that unfolded after the verdict. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. 41-year-old defense attorney Richard Skinner had one goal walking into court on October 27, 1819, to save the lives of his clients. If convicted of murder, the Bourne brothers would receive an automatic death sentence. The case was an uphill battle from the start. During jury selection, 11 of the 29 potential jurors in the pool already believed 31-year-old Stephen Bourne and his 27-year-old brother Jesse were guilty. They were immediately dismissed, but it set the proceedings off on a dispiriting note for Skinner. But 30-year-old state's attorney Calvin Sheldon was emboldened. He agreed with the biased assessment and felt confident in his ability to secure a conviction. All eyes were on him as roughly 600 residents of Manchester packed the meeting house to watch the trial. Vermont law at the time stipulated that any case that might result in a death sentence was to be heard before a panel of the state Supreme Court justices. Hearing this case were judges Dudley Chase, William Brayton, and Joel Doolittle. As his first witness, Calvin Sheldon summoned his own opponent to the stand, Richard Skinner. In 1819, local defense attorneys routinely helped the police conduct criminal investigations. Surprisingly, those attorneys often went on to represent the accused. This was the case with Skinner. Before he was hired to represent the Bourne brothers, he had witnessed portions of the investigation in service of the police. Though it sounds strange to modern listeners, Skinner was therefore called to the stand to testify against his own clients. Though reluctant, he had no choice. After Amos Bourne dreamt of Russell's root cellar burial, the site was excavated for clues. Police discovered two knives and a button with a distinctive flower pattern. Skinner was present when Russell Colvin's wife identified one of the knives and the button as belonging to her husband. It was damning testimony that no doubt impacted the jury, and it came from the brothers' own representation. But Skinner's next statements were even more incriminating. Jesse Bourne confided to him that his brother, Stephen, was involved in the murder. While attorney-client privilege was recognized in 1819, Skinner wasn't Jesse's attorney yet when he made the statement, so it wasn't protected. The seasoned defense attorney had to tell the jury that one of his clients had implicated the other. Next to the stand was Thomas Johnson, one of the Bourne's neighbors. Thomas recounted the fight he witnessed between Russell, Stephen, and Jesse on May 10, 1812, the last day anyone in Manchester saw Russell. Thomas was approximately 500 feet away during the confrontation. State's attorney Calvin Sheldon asked if he possibly misidentified the men because he was so far away. Thomas replied, Absolutely not. He knew the Bourne family well enough to recognize them from that distance, and he could tell they were very angry with each other. Stephen and Russell were still shouting when Thomas turned back towards his house. Thomas went on to describe two other odd incidents that happened in the spring of 1815. 
three years after Russell went missing. The first happened when Thomas's children were out playing. They came home with an old weathered hat they found in the field. Thomas recognized it as the same style that Russell always wore. It was moldy, obviously having been in the elements for quite some time. Then later that same spring, a tree sprouted at the site of the old born cellar, the same one from Amos's dream. The tree was only about three feet tall, so Thomas cut it down and moved on. But later in 1815, Thomas was in that part of the field again and noticed the leftover tree stump was completely gone. The entire area was dug up. This statement seemed to confirm the details of Stephen's alleged confession to Thomas. Stephen said that he and Jesse had initially buried Russell's body in the cellar, but later moved it to a sheep barn for fear of discovery. However, on cross-examination, attorney Richard Skinner pressed this issue. He asked Thomas to clarify the details of the supposed reburial. If the body was relocated to a sheep barn, why wasn't it ever discovered there? Thomas explained that the barn had later burned down. Stephen told him that he collected the bones from the ruined building and smashed them up with a hammer. Then he dumped the pieces in the river for good measure. But Skinner saw a flaw in this story. Was Thomas sure that the barn fire had occurred after he noticed the root cellar had been dug up? Thomas thought about it for a moment, then conceded that he might be remembering wrong. Now that Skinner mentioned it, Thomas admitted he thought the barn fire happened before the cellar had been partly dug up. It was an important chance for Skinner to sow doubt in the minds of the jury. If this major event in Stephen's confession wasn't true, it cast doubt on all of his statements to Thomas. State's attorney Calvin Sheldon wasn't deterred by the takedown of Thomas Johnson. He wasn't the only witness to the confrontation on May 10th. Russell's oldest son, 17-year-old Lewis Colvin, was also in the field that day. He was only 10 when he watched his father grab a small branch and try to hit his uncle Stephen with it. He told the court that Stephen swung a larger branch in retaliation and knocked Russell over. When Russell tried to get up, Stephen struck him again. At the sight of his father lying motionless on the ground, Lewis ran home in fear. But Lewis's statements were inconsistent, which defense attorney Richard Skinner called out on his cross-examination. Lewis first testified that his uncle Stephen threatened to kill him if he ever told anyone what he saw that day. But then he said his family didn't mention his father for a year or two after the disappearance. He also initially claimed that Stephen never told him what happened to his father, but later testified that Stephen said Russell ran off. Following Lewis on the stand was his mother, 36-year-old Sally Colvin. She told the jurors and all the spectators about the two children she bore after her husband disappeared. She testified that she wanted to pursue a paternity case against the father of one of her children in 1815, three years after Russell went missing, but she couldn't. In the eyes of the law, Russell was the presumed father of any child she gave birth to unless she had proof he died. 
Sally testified that when she mentioned this to Stephen and Jesse, they told her they knew Russell was dead. She assumed that her brothers knew this because they had killed her husband. She stayed quiet to protect them. While her statements are damning, the potential financial benefit of Sally's testimony can't be ignored. If it was proven Russell was murdered back in May of 1812, it meant she was a widow when she had her last two children. She could then finally pursue a paternity case against the father and claim child support. Unfortunately, defense attorney Richard Skinner failed to point this out to the jury. Calvin Sheldon used his next witness, William Wyman, to emphasize that the Bourne brothers' actions against Russell were premeditated. William told the court how Stephen angrily complained about Russell, Sally, and their many children leeching off his parents. Stephen said he would have to put an end to it himself. This conversation occurred just weeks before Russell's disappearance. Most damning of all, while the brothers were in jail awaiting trial, they both separately confessed to Russell's murder. Jesse Bourne's cellmate, Silas Merrill, alleged that Jesse admitted to him one night that he, his brother, and his father had all participated in the murder. In addition, Silas testified that he had also spoken with Stephen Bourne in jail. He confided to Silas that he planned to confess to manslaughter. He would claim Jesse wasn't there in order to protect his brother. Richard Skinner scrambled to control the damage. After Silas's testimony, Calvin Sheldon planned to read Stephen's written confession to the jury as well, which was far more damning. Richard petitioned the judicial panel to exclude the statement from the record, alleging that the court officers made him false promises of leniency. To prove his point, he called four of the court officers involved in questioning Stephen Bourne to the stand. Two denied ever making any assurances, but the other two admitted they told him that confessing was his only chance at mercy and saving himself from the gallows. At the time, the admissibility of confessions was left up to the jury, not the judges. After the testimony of the court officers, the jury determined the confession was inadmissible because of the false promises. While the jury now knew the confession existed, they didn't know what it said. State's attorney Sheldon was only briefly thrown by this unexpected decision. He had a backup plan. He called William Farnsworth to the stand, who spoke with Stephen a few weeks after the written confession. William alleged that Stephen lamented making the statement because it hadn't granted him any leniency, but confirmed that he had, in fact, killed his brother-in-law. Sheldon didn't need to read the written statement. He simply asked William to recall his conversation with Stephen Bourne for the jury. Skinner immediately objected. With this testimony, all the ground he'd gained would be lost in an instant. Coming up, the jury makes a ruling. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In October of 1819, defense attorney Richard Skinner was fighting an uphill battle in the trial of 31-year-old Stephen and 27-year-old Jesse Bourne. The stakes were high. If convicted of the murder of Russell Colvin, the men would be executed. Skinner's latest hurdle was the testimony of William Farnsworth. Stephen had allegedly told William the contents of his written confession. If the jury allowed William to testify, it wouldn't matter that the confession was previously ruled inadmissible. William swore to the jury that he had not pressured Stephen to speak to him about the case. Any admissions Stephen made were willingly given, from one friend to another. With that reassurance, the jury decided to hear what he had to say. William testified that Stephen told him Russell's death was an accident. He didn't mean to kill him when he smacked him with the branch. Afterward, he buried Russell's body in the root cellar. Skinner was furious, but there was nothing that could be done. William Farnsworth's testimony brought the most incriminating parts of the written confession into the record. Satisfied that the Bourne brothers would be condemned by their own words, state's attorney Calvin Sheldon rested his case. Richard Skinner's defense focused on two angles. First, Russell's body was never found. This provided reasonable doubt that a murder had even occurred. To emphasize this unknown, Skinner called Russell's wife, sister, and two friends to testify about his tendency to wander. Next, Skinner hoped to mitigate the impact of the confessions. He stressed to the jury that Stephen made his written statement only after his interrogators made him false promises of leniency. Skinner alleged that this affected his client's motivations to confess, whether or not he was telling the truth. The assumption in the 19th century, and even today, was that innocent people do not confess to something they didn't do. However, the National Registry of Exonerations reported that 27% of people exonerated after a homicide conviction gave false confessions. There are a number of factors that lead to false confessions, but a suspect who feels like they have no option other than to comply with their interrogator may make a false statement to alleviate the pressure of the situation. In the three months leading up to his confession, Stephen was kept chained to the floor of a windowless cell while jailers taunted him with his impending death by hanging. These stressors, coupled with the promises of mercy, may have made Stephen believe confessing was his best option. To fortify this line of thinking, Skinner called magistrate John Pettibone. He told the court that both brothers were threatened in an attempt to get them to confess. Jesse was told he would hang along with Stephen if he didn't tell them about Stephen murdering Russell. He also said he heard a court officer tell Stephen he was a gone goose if he didn't confess. But that only addressed two of the three confessions. 
Skinner next focused on Jesse Bourne's alleged midnight revelation to his cellmate, Silas Merrill. He started by reminding the jury that Silas Merrill was a proven liar. The only reason he found himself in the same cell as Jesse Bourne was by his own acts of fraud and forgery. To illustrate Silas's motive to lie in this case, Skinner called the jailer Cyrus Munson. Skinner alleged that Cyrus showed Silas special treatment in exchange for his testimony. For example, when Silas was brought in front of the grand jury to make a statement, he was in chains. After he fingered Jesse Bourne, the chains were removed. But Munson wouldn't give him any ground here. He said the change was normal. After grand jury proceedings, the jail always lost prisoners who weren't indicted. They didn't need to keep the few who remained chained. Skinner continued, Why was Silas periodically allowed out of jail? Did that not qualify as special treatment? Munson brushed that off as well. Silas was sometimes brought to Munson's farm to work. It was hard labor what he was sentenced to, not a special privilege. Defeated, Skinner was forced to rest his case. On October 31, 1819, the state began their summation. Calvin Sheldon reminded the jury that the standard for conviction was beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond all doubt. Even though the case was circumstantial, the confessions of the brothers were supported by the evidence, and Stephen's angry complaints about his wife and brother-in-law proved the crime was premeditated he urged the jury to find the Bourne brothers guilty. In an attempt to make their closing statements more impactful, defense attorney Richard Skinner and his co-counsel, Leonard Sargent, decided to share their final presentation to the jury. Sargent began by reminding the jury that the state did not prove that the roving Russell Colvin was even dead, let alone at the hands of his brothers-in-law. Sargent also dismissed the knife and button found in the cellar as being too generic in appearance to definitively link to Russell. Regardless, Sargent reasoned, the cellar was far too small to bury a grown man, measuring slightly less than four foot by four foot. As for the motive of stopping Russell and Sally from leeching off his parents, killing Russell did not achieve that. Sally was left without any husband to bring in even a small income. Then she went on to have two more children who Barney Bourne was forced to support. Then Sargent ceded the floor to Skinner. He dramatically rose from his chair and stayed silent until every eye of the jury was upon him. By delivering this part himself, as the senior counsel, he made it clear that this was crucial information. He told the jury Silas Merrill was not to be believed. The crimes he was charged with involved deception, and he only testified for relief in his own case. As for Stephen and Jesse telling their sister Sally that Russell was dead, Skinner said the brothers said that in an attempt to help Sally get support for her child. This would alleviate the burden on their parents. Skinner echoed Sargent's words. The state didn't prove that Russell Colvin was dead, but if the jury believed Russell was killed, there was a difference between murder and manslaughter. In Vermont, 
A murder conviction required the state to prove an intent to kill. Lewis Colvin testified that Stephen hit his father only after Russell attacked first. Therefore, the state couldn't prove intent. With this, Skinner took his seat. He had done his best to defend his clients, and he could only hope it was enough to spare them the noose. The jury filed out to begin their deliberations. In only one hour, they came back with their verdict. Fearing the worst, Richard Skinner tried one last tactic. He asked that the verdict be delivered by polling the jury, which required each juror to state their verdict individually. If the verdict was guilty, Skinner hoped any men who were still on the fence would falter when put on the spot. In the case against 31-year-old Stephen Bourne, the 12 men said, in turn, guilty. When it came to 27-year-old Jesse Bourne, the 12 voices again said, guilty. None faltered. An hour after the verdict, the panel of judges rendered the sentence. On January 28, 1820, between the hours of 1 and 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the brothers would be hanged. And may the Lord have mercy on their souls. The court asked if Stephen and Jesse had any statement to make. They both insisted on their innocence. When they were taken away from the meeting house, Stephen's legs gave out and he had to be carried back to the jail. While the jury's verdict was the outcome the public was looking for, the sentence for Jesse Bourne was not. At most, the evidence showed he was a witness and an accessory after the fact. There was no indication that he planned the murder of Russell Colvin or had even touched his brother-in-law that day. That's not to say Stephen didn't have his supporters as well. Some observers believed the evidence had only supported a manslaughter conviction and the death penalty was too harsh of a sentence. Co-counsel Leonard Sargent jumped on this support. He circulated petitions on behalf of the brothers to try to get their sentences reduced by the state legislature. 26 men signed the petition for Jesse's appeal. Nine signed for Stephen. The state legislature considered the matter on November 17, 1819, the last day of the 1819 session. The representatives from Manchester and the surrounding area largely voted no, showing that public opinion was still against the brothers. But the statewide vote was in Jesse's favor, 104 to 33, to reduce Jesse's sentence to life in prison with hard labor. However, Stephen did not see such mercy. In a 97 to 43 vote, the legislature upheld his death sentence. The men heard the verdicts together from the governor of Vermont himself. Governor Jonas Galusha lived south of Manchester and was traveling through to get home at the end of the legislative session. He agreed to deliver the results personally. 27-year-old Jesse felt immense relief at the news. He was transported to the Vermont State Prison, 55 miles away in Windsor. 
Life in prison with hard labor was not an easy sentence, especially facing the Vermont winter in an unheated state penitentiary. But at least he would live. He had hope he might one day be paroled. Stephen, learning his last hope at avoiding the noose had failed, became despondent. In desperation, he asked Leonard Sargent to place ads in newspapers about Russell Colvin. Maybe someone outside of Manchester knew his whereabouts. Stephen assured Sargent that he did not kill Russell, and he was sure he was out there somewhere. While Sargent didn't hold much hope this would work, he did as his client asked. However, before Sargent could place the ads, the Albany Gazette and Daily Advertiser received an anonymous letter. The author recounted the story of Russell Colvin's disappearance. Many of the details were exaggerated, likely to add to the drama. For example, the letter said that the ghost who visited Amos Bourne named Stephen and Jesse as his killers, and that Russell's skeleton was found in the old cellar. The newspapers published the letter, spreading the story outside of Vermont. In the 19th century, it was common for newspapers to scour the pages of their competition and reprint any story that looked interesting. Several papers republished the sensational tale of a specter leading someone to Russell's hidden grave. One of these papers was the respected New York Evening Post. On the morning of November 27, 1819, a group of men in New York City discussed the Evening Post article. One man in the group, James Welpley, was from Manchester originally. He was able to provide more details to the other men about the Bourne family and even some anecdotes about the strange and apparently late Russell Colvin. Listening along was a Methodist minister named Tabor Chadwick. Chadwick was visiting from Shrewsbury, New Jersey. This story struck him immediately. He was pretty sure he knew exactly where Russell Colvin was. Coming up, Russell Colvin returns to Manchester. Now back to the story. When Methodist minister Tabor Chadwick overheard the story of 34-year-old Russell Colvin's alleged murder, he recognized several details about the supposed dead man. Furthermore, he believed Russell was still alive. About five or six years earlier, Chadwick's sister and her husband had hired a man from Manchester, Vermont to work their farm. His name was Russell. He had a different last name, but Chadwick couldn't shake the idea he was Russell Colvin. After Chadwick returned to his home in Shrewsbury, he wrote a letter to the New York Evening Post. He said that while he didn't know many details from the trial, he believed Russell Colvin, now 41 years old, was living on a farm in New Jersey. He described the man he believed to be Russell as in a state of mental derangement. He could never give a full account of why he left Vermont. This is consistent with the Manchester Town Council describing Russell as weak of mind many years before. Chadwick provided a vague description, which did match Russell. He said the man had spoken of a woman named Clarissa and someone named Rufus. These are the names of Russell Colvin's sister 
and his son. Chadwick also mailed a copy of this letter to the postmaster of Manchester. The Evening Post published the letter on December 10, 1819, when James Welpley, a friend of Chadwick's who previously lived in Manchester, saw the article, he agreed to travel the 50 miles down to Shrewsbury to see if this man was genuine. When he arrived, the minister told him Russell lived about 25 miles further south with Chadwick's sister, Mary Polhemus, and her husband, William. James arrived at the Polhemus property while Russell wasn't there. William Polhemus described Russell as a good employee, but not mentally well. He was under the impression the Polhemus farm actually belonged to him. It seemed like a benign delusion, so they said nothing to contradict him. While they were talking, Russell appeared at the farmhouse. He looked surprised when he saw James, but it wasn't clear if he recognized him. When James called him Colvin, Russell replied, that wasn't his name anymore. Russell initially denied knowing many of the people James named, but when James asked him how he got a scar on his head, he said he got it when he was working on the mountainside for a man in Manchester. James recognized the name of the man. As they eased into the conversation, Russell mentioned more familiar names from Manchester, enough that James was convinced that this was indeed the long-lost Russell Colvin, alive and well. James knew he had to get Russell back to Manchester as soon as possible. They had only a month until Stephen would hang. But Russell refused to go back for unknown reasons, so James instead asked him to travel to New York City under the guise they were going for a visit. It's unclear how James convinced Russell to continue the journey past New York. James claimed he tricked Russell into taking a steamboat up the Hudson River to Albany by telling him they were headed back to New Jersey. But when James later submitted a bill to the state of Vermont for his expenses in returning Russell Colvin, it showed they took a stagecoach from New York City to Albany, not a steamboat. From Albany, they traveled to Bennington, Vermont, 26 miles south of Manchester. When they arrived on December 22, 1819, they were met by a curious swarm. Many believed the confessions of Stephen and Jesse had been evidence of their guilt and doubted this man, claiming to be Russell Colvin, was legitimate. The Bennington townspeople crowded around to get a look at Russell. They recognized him immediately. According to newspaper reports, Russell recognized many of them as well, addressing some of the people by name. Word made it north that Russell had been positively identified at his stop in Bennington. By the time he arrived in Manchester later that same day, hundreds of people met the carriage in the city center. The horses stopped in front of Captain Black's tavern. The second floor of the tavern held the courthouse, and the jail was across the street. Stephen Bourne was brought in leg irons to see Russell in the street. The mood turned somber as the men faced each other. Stephen said nothing, while Russell looked at the chains bound around his ankles. 
He gestured at them, asking, what is that for? Stephen told him that the town believed he had killed Russell. Russell replied, you never hurt me. He said Jesse once hit him with a briar, but it didn't hurt. Russell, apparently overwhelmed and confused by the day's events, offered nothing else that evening. Over the next few days, several other people confirmed the identity of Russell, though they had to admit he had changed in the last seven years. He appeared to recognize his wife, Sally, immediately, though he had no interest in talking to her. He dismissed her, simply saying, that is all over with. The two never spoke again. When Russell saw his children, he didn't recognize them. But this isn't too shocking. They were all under the age of 11 when he left. After seven years, they had grown from little kids into teenagers. When Russell learned they were his children, he was surprised they were in Manchester. He said he had left his children in New Jersey and was concerned that he needed to get them back. This behavior seemed in line with what the people of Manchester remembered about Russell from seven years prior. In some ways, his brain would be sharp, and in others, he struggled with confusion. If Russell had access to modern medicine, he may have been diagnosed with a neurocognitive disorder. This could explain his alternating confusion and clarity, as well as what appeared to be the progressive nature of whatever was afflicting him. But for some, remembering some things but forgetting others left room for doubt that this was really Russell Colvin and not an imposter. The state was not going to let Jesse and Stephen free without being sure of who this man was. This was long before our modern identification tools like fingerprints and DNA. Photography wouldn't be invented for six more years. The court had to rely on the memories and identifications of the citizens of Manchester and a thorough interview with Russell himself. State's attorney Calvin Sheldon asked the mysterious man detailed questions about Russell Colvin's life, the people in Manchester, and even notable events in the past. While the record of the inquiry has been lost to history, one question and answer survived in retellings. Russell was asked who built the building they were currently in, which was called Captain Black's Tavern. This was a bit of a trick question, because the tavern had been renamed in 1816 after Russell had disappeared. The tavern was originally built in 1801 by a Captain Munson and called Captain Munson's Tavern. Russell answered correctly, seemingly unaware the tavern's name ever changed. The inquiry ruled that no fraudster could have learned such detailed information about the town and its residents. They declared this man, Russell Colvin. Russell, not wanting to stay in Manchester any longer than he had to, left on December 22, 1819. As far as the record shows, that was the last time he had contact with anyone from his life before his disappearance. Stephen was released from jail, but he had to stay in Manchester. He moved back in with his parents, becoming the same kind of freeloader he'd once groused about. 
This was the first time a wrongful conviction had been acknowledged in the United States, and there was no procedure for overturning the jury's verdict. Therefore, Jesse's life sentence still stood. He remained locked up in state prison. It wasn't until January 18, 1820, that attorney Leonard Sargent came up with a plan. Though he had no legal precedent backing him up, he asked the Supreme Court of Vermont to grant the brothers another trial on the basis of newly discovered evidence. The court agreed and vacated the conviction to make way for a new trial. But state's attorney Calvin Sheldon decided not to proceed. Instead, he dropped the charges against the Bourne brothers and the men were finally freed. Both brothers petitioned the General Assembly for financial relief in October of 1820, stating that their wrongful imprisonments had poorly affected their health. 28-year-old Stephen added that his wife and children were left penniless by his arrest. The state declined to provide this relief, as both men had confessed to the crime that put them in prison. The state placed the blame for their wrongful conviction on the Bourne brothers' shoulders. Eventually, they moved to Burton, Ohio, seeking better prospects and more anonymity. Jesse adopted the alias Jesse Bowen. The brothers scratched out a living on their shared farm, the matter of Russell Colvin seemingly settled. But in the summer of 1860, 68-year-old Jesse Bourne revived the story he confided in a new business partner, H.M. Hackett, that he and Stephen, now deceased, had killed their brother-in-law 40 years ago and gotten away with it. Now, Hackett and Jesse's joint business venture was a coin counterfeiting operation. It could be that he shared the story of Russell's murder as a way to impress his fellow criminal. Jesse certainly embellished the details, telling Hackett that on the day of their execution, with the nooses around their necks, a man came forward from the crowd and announced himself as Russell Colvin. He told Hackett that the man was actually a look-alike from New Jersey, who the Bourne family paid to impersonate Russell. Unfortunately for Jesse, H.M. Hackett was not actually a crook. He was an undercover deputy U.S. Marshal, on July 20th, 1860, Jesse and the other members of his counterfeiting gang were arrested. Hackett told a reporter that Jesse had once again confessed to Russell's murder and to covering it up. The newspapers jumped on the old melodrama. Was it possible the people of Manchester were tricked by a clever imposter? Or was it more likely Jesse Bourne was simply bragging? The idea that this grand conspiracy was perpetrated and financed by the Bourne family was initially dismissed. No further investigation was done at the time. However, in his 1993 book, The Counterfeit Man, author Gerald W. McFarland examined the historical record and cited many inconsistencies in the official story. For instance, it was believed the Bournes could not have financed this conspiracy because they were poor farmers. However, the family was quite comfortable, able to afford the best lawyer in town for their son's defense. 
McFarland also pointed out that James Welpley, the man who returned Russell to Vermont, was from Manchester himself and therefore wouldn't have had any issue feeding an imposter what he needed to fool the townspeople. And anything the fraudulent Russell didn't know could be covered up by pretending to be confused. After all, the town already believed him to have a weak mind. But because none of this was raised at the time, no murder charges were pursued against Jesse Bourne. On the counterfeit charges, Jesse was convicted and spent over four years in the Ohio State Penitentiary. He was released in November of 1864 at the age of 72. He died a few years later, and the true story about Russell Colvin died with him. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Not Guilty in the search bar. For more information on the Bourne Brothers, amongst the many sources we used, we found Gerald W. McFarland's book, The Counterfeit Man, extremely helpful to our research. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>